0: All right, welcome back to another episode of the future cities podcast i'm your host steven elser this month we're going to try to define resilience which is
1: pretty complicated
0: uh, but to join me this month and to help me along with the
1: conversation is sam Markov. Hey Steven, how's it going? I'm doing pretty well. How about yourself? Good, good. As always, excited to be here talking about resilience. Talking resilience. <laughs> oh it's yeah. what we do. <laughs> so thanks for joining us. You're getting a little sneak peek into our world here. Yes, a pretty waking moment. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um yeah, so it's um, Resilient, we talk about resilience a lot as researchers, but it's also uh, permeated throughout pop culture. You can find resilience talked about in
2: songs.
0: Or even in truck commercials.
2: Long live resilience.
0: So, yeah, resilience has really become the sort of buzzword, and uh, it's not always clear what we mean when we say resilience or that someone or something is resilient. Um, So I asked some of my friends, what is resilience?
3: What is resilience?
1: What is resilience?
3: What is resilience? Oh, God, that's a complicated question. (laughs) Um... I
2: don't want to answer that question. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I totally got asked this in an interview recently.
3: <laughs> oh, man, I'm too tired for this. This is hard. Um... <laughs>
2: Resilience is the ability, a property of an ecosystem that describes its ability to um, react and adapt to change.
3: How much like perturbation or pressure needs to be put on an ecosystem before it changes states? The uh, ability of a system to um, bounce back from a perturbation while maintaining uh, certain ecosystem properties or function.
4: The ability to self-sustain given adversity.
0: The ability of an ecosystem to maintain its kind of um, integral, identity despite disturbance
4: the ability to uh, take some kind of insult and persevere from it
1: the ability of systems to uh, rebound to their previous state after a disturbance event and that could be applied to uh, cities or natural systems or even human populations
2: resilience is the ability of a system to um, return to functioning or to increase its ability to function after a disturbance. Beautiful. Something like that.
0: <laughs> so as you heard, it can be kind of hard to define resilience. Uh, it's very complicated uh, and challenging to actually try and define such a complex, complex topic. Uh, but for us, we try to frame it through the set's perspective.
1: Yeah, that's a good point, Stephen. And and by sets, uh what we mean by that is social, ecological and technological systems. So, if we take a city, uh it's it's not one of those, it's all of those. So, a city has uh technology in the form of physical infrastructure, um of of a variety of forms buildings roads water systems power systems it has social systems meaning the people uh the rules policies economic issues equity and justice issues and then ecological systems we live in phoenix uh it's getting to be that time of year where it's getting pretty toasty outside so you know each city is existing within a ecological environment that was there before the city was so whether that means the the temperature that experiences the soil type the water type the natural vegetation so that's what we mean by sets social ecological and technological systems and that's one way that you can start to sort of break down this more complicated topic of resilience and that's what we'll be hearing from our guests about today what are how is what is resilience from a social perspective and ecological perspective and a technological perspective and then how do those all com- connect to each other
0: right and our first guest to talk to us about resilience from an ecological perspective is dr nancy grimm
2: yeah i'm nancy grimm i'm a professor of uh, ecology here in the school of life sciences at arizona state university and i am um one of the co-directors of the urban resilience to extreme sustainability research network
1: Great. Thank
0: you so much. So could you tell us from an ecological perspective, what is resilience?
2: Okay, so first from an ecological perspective, um, I, that's evolved quite a lot. So um, currently I think that uh, most people accept the uh, uh, the definition of resilience that was put forward by a group called the Resilience Alliance that says that uh, Resilience is a capacity of a system to withstand external shocks and uh, uh, and 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 also to sort of grow and move forward um, in the face of those shocks, so that it entails components of um, of both resisting change but also being able to bounce back. Um, and so there's a lot there's a lot in there, and um, that definition has. Uh, has been criticized by some people as having too many, uh, moving parts. So (laughs) what is the part of it that we're, that we're concerned about? But, um, I think it's a reasonable one. Um, and, uh, it, it really is, um, the definition that has been adopted by social ecological systems, um, thinkers, uh, um, not just ecological. Okay. So I can back up a little bit, if yeah, you'd like. Yeah, please and, do. Yeah. yeah, and talk about sort of ecological resilience and where that uh, where that was when I first started working on it.
0: So, yeah, that'd be great.
2: Um, I first started working on um, ideas of uh, ecological disturbance um, back in the 1980s, and uh, particularly in stream ecology, which is where I sort of grew up. Um, there were interests in, you know, what ecological Ecological disturbance is, and how um, it affects ecosystem structure and function, and 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 how it is a sort of force for change in ecosystems. And so, the idea was that disturbance, which in this case would be what we were talking about as these external shocks, uh, would be something that would um, that would reset the system or that would um, disrupt its structure. Um, and so. The idea of resilience um, when I first started working on it was similar to what is now called engineering resilience, which is this sort of rubber band analogy you know, you stretch and it's able to come back. Uh, whereas we contrasted that with resistance, which is the ability of a system to withstand change. And so I actually measured those things in my research. I measured how much a flood disturbance um, displaced the system from its previous state. And then I measured the slope of the change in system state over time following a disturbance as a measure of resilience. And, um, and so um, the problems with that definition are really that we assume that there's some kind of equilibrium stable state that we expect the system to inhabit and that it's going to come back to that given some kind of disturbance. That's not really the way the world works, we yeah. found out. So in fact, um, it's really better to think about uh, systems as sort of exhibiting um, a great deal of variability within some sort of uh, some sort of uh, well, this is kind of a nerdy term to say, but it, it, it works, basin of attraction. So you can think of it as kind of a, a range of conditions that the system might exhibit. Uh, over time and it might sort of slop around in those different conditions and little events can happen that could make it move from one side of that basin to another side of that basin Mm -hmm. but nothing is going to really push it outside of that and so the idea uh, is therefore that the system is not one static um, uh, equilibrium but maybe has multiple equilibria that it can exhibit or multiple states that it can exhibit so this um, idea of resilience as having these components of resistance, of um, of, ch- of coming back or moving through time, um, of being close or far away from something called a tipping point, which is where it would move into a completely different state, uh, those kinds of um, terms are more incorporated in the in the definition of resilience that was um, sort of owed to. Um, uh, buzz hauling in the in the 1970s, and then developed further through this group, the Resilience Alliance.
0: So you mentioned the def, the definition you first gave. You said was pretty accepted in the socio-ecological resilience mm-hmm. sort of uh, understanding. Uh, how does the definition of resilience change when you add the technological uh, perspective, the social-ecological technological perspective?
2: Yeah, that's really interesting to to think about because um, there's been so much development of social ecological uh, systems theory and uh, ideas about how things have to change, our view of, of ecological systems have to change when we put people into the equation um, and some people treat uh, technology or the built environment or infrastructure as just sort of a manifestation of putting people into the system but I don't think that's exactly right because we have this whole like monumental amount of work that Um, If you think back on, um, you know, how uh, engineering has developed, for example, um, the idea of, um, you know, of of structures being um, uh, fail-safe or being, you know, built for the 100-year event or something like that, this has implications that they are going to withstand the kind of um, disturbances or shocks that might um, that might be expected of them and those things are usually developed um, using some reference to the past so how how um, how big have the floods been in the past and so let's build something that can withstand one of those that has just a one percent chance of of occurring and will be safe the problem is that one percent chance is changing yeah. so the one percent the the size of an event that's associated with 1% is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger and so that doesn't work so well um, so so I so I don't think it's right to say well this this can all just incorporate this because um, because these systems are, are part of uh, you know the human manifestation of, of uh, interacting with uh, natural systems I think they have some uh, unique characteristics um, uh, infrastructure systems or built environment, is often, um, I mean, it's often made for a particular single purpose. And so if um, it fails at that single purpose, then it can be catastrophic. Um, They also potentially have really different time horizons for... um, This variability that we talked about, this moving around in a basin of attraction, maybe they don't move very much at all, um, and the time horizons uh, are are really different. So we think of built infrastructure as being really permanent. It isn't necessarily, but we think of it in that way. Um, And so I think those are some of the reasons why um, I think we have to explicitly think about the resilience of the technological components of, uh, of sets or social, ecological, technological systems.
0: So again, that was Dr. Nancy Grimm, and I thought something that was really interesting there is that she's sort of highlighting that the idea of resilience sort of started in ecology, and it has evolved over time. But the uh, the definition, while it has evolved, has also been adopted by different um, fields of thinking,
1: including social and engineering. Um, yeah, and I, I mean, it kind of makes sense too that it would maybe start out in ecology because uh, resilience and and adaptation are very kind of interrelated uh, topics, and a lot of times they're they're meant, they're spoken of as synonyms. And so, you know, in ecological systems, things have to adapt or die. And so, yeah, right, right, right. so it makes sense that that's where that comes from. But it's interesting to see now how how uh, this, these concepts have sort of. Uh, evolved and spread out into, yeah, these social, or the, yeah, social and technological, uh, systems as well. So, um, that's a great example of, uh, kind of the importance of, of different disciplines talking to each other and, and being right. aware of what's going on. Cause, uh, a lot of times with these, with these, uh, big problems like climate change or, or, or urban systems, you can't just approach it from one discipline or one perspective. You need to sort of integrate, uh, these, diverse backgrounds and then that's really how you can hopefully get to a it. sort of a better uh, better approach to the problem but there are also uh, problems when you try to adopt
0: a framework that was made in a different field of study than your own and apply it to your field um, and that's something that our upcoming guest marta Berbes, uh, will discuss from the social resilience perspective
3: so my name is marta Berbes, and i'm a postdoctoral fellow with the urex and i'm working with the scenarios working group
0: Great. Thank you very much. So can you tell us from uh, a social perspective, what is resilience?
3: Okay, so this is the part that um, I'm not sure if you're going to agree with me, but I don't think of resilience from a social perspective. I think of resilience in a more general sense. So I think that resilience has to do with change and with permanence. And I think that a system can be resilient if it's able to um, adapt to stimulate, adapt to change and learn, uh, if it's able to withstand um, shocks, and if it's able to self-organize. And then you can say that social systems might be resilient if they do that. And so I think that I, I don't have a very good definition for social resilience because I think that's an application of the ideas of resilience to social systems. And a lot of people do that, but um, I myself think of resilience of social, ecological technological systems. I don't know if that's clear. But I, I, So I think that when social resilience, the term emerged, uh, it was, I think, in 2000 with an article by Neil Adger. And I believe he's the first person that said can we use the term social resilience and and what do we have to learn? And I think that in that article he expressly says that we should use resilience ideas to inspire our understanding of the social. From then on, I think that people have talked about community resilience, and I think that that's a good application. And basically, you're taking the principles of resilience, and you're applying to a community setting. See if that community, uh, you know, what are the social mechanisms that allow that community to self-organize, to learn, to adapt, to withstand shock, and so on. Um, So that's a little bit how I would define it. And that's a distinction that I make. So that's why I don't often talk about social resilience in itself.
4: Okay
0: uh do you think your perspective here would would be common among uh, more social scientists to
3: Oh <laughs> yeah I think the social scientists have hard, have hard, have had a hard time with resilience in general and I think that in some ways rightly so because, Resilience emerges, as you know, from, um, you know, like the natural sciences, from understanding uh, ecosystems, and it was very widely successful in looking at ecosystems and ecosystem dynamics. And then, you know, there's this questioning of, can we use this uh, to understand social systems or actually, more precisely, social ecological systems? Um, And I think that then the contention of, of social scientists is that you can't just take, A framework that was developed for the natural sciences and applied unproblematically to social systems because social systems are very, very different. They're very complex. Uh, There's a lot of dimensions that you cannot really capture as easily, I think. Uh, And a lot of those dimensions have to do with the dimensions of power, power relations, of um, agency. Uh, For instance, resilience is. Um, A systems understanding that really emphasizes what the like the system dynamics um, in a very abstract way what the system does. Um, So there's not a lot of agency. It looks like things happen because the system does the way the system interacts. Um, Whereas social scientists oftentimes they want to know why and who the. That right, and 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 who's being uh, you know who's being impacted and who's being benefited by particular um, you know like policies or whatever it is. So I think that social scientists often talk about resilience as um, a way. <sighs> They are, I think, generally unhappy with having resilience apply to social systems because it's really difficult within the resilience framework to uh, talk about questions of you know, justice and power and agency. And those understandings are underdeveloped. And I think that that's one of the challenges, like where you can look at resilience and have it informed by political ecology, but like how do you walk that, that, that space? It's, it really is challenging. Um, yeah.
0: Great. Could you talk a little bit about uh, resilience of what to what for whom?
3: yeah, well, I think like that's the departing point I, and I think that I'm guilty of always saying that, <laughs> but I think that whenever people talk about resilience um, they have an idea, usually a normative idea about something that is good that we should like increase resilience always you know more resi- and, and and always like to me is always oh, about, like, let's backtrack a little bit. Resilience of what to what and for whom? Like, if you cannot answer those questions, you know, like, you're just using resilience in a very loose way because, again, the power of the lens is that you will identify a socio-ecological, technological system that you either wanna maintain or you wanna change, um, but then does it to what, right? like what is it that you're trying, and, you know, like, in, in our work, a lot of it is, you want to build resilience of cities to, uh, you know, extreme events? And and then, the for whom is really where the critical questioning comes in, because you may increase resilience of, you know, like, in watersheds, like, you increase the resilience of uh, a community upstream to the detriment of a community downstream, and, and, and that sort of thing, right? So, I think that that is the parting point of, you know, whenever you are approaching, you know, like whenever you want to build the resilience of something, of a system, you should be able to start with those questions, answer those questions, and and because I think not only that kind of like, give, like gives you a way of bounding the system, which is important, because otherwise you have no way of knowing what the system is actually doing. If the system is like everything, well, then it's really difficult, it's much too complex um, to what which usually is much more easy to identify once you know which system you're interested in and the for whom and the for whom is, is an incredibly that's where a lot of the values and a lot of the critical thinking comes in because you know like there's different stakeholders and what one might desire to keep resilient other people might want to tear it apart so yeah that I would think like that's the basis you answer that and then you move on like, to whatever else you want to do but yeah
0: so something there that Martha mentioned that I thought was uh, important and that Nancy sort of touched on as well is that resilience is just, it's so complicated. It's interdisciplinary, it's transdisciplinary. It's just including so many different perspectives. And that makes a real challenge to study as a scientist because it's hard to grasp onto any one part because one part isn't really enough
1: right. to understand resilience. Yeah. Um, and again, that's that's kind of why we like to think of things from this SETS perspective, because, you know, I'm an engineer by training. Uh, You know, we can traditionally, you know, we could we could recognize, okay this this dam isn't built high enough or this levee isn't built high enough to uh, prevent certain level of flooding. You can raise the dam. But to do that, you still need people to design it properly, operate it properly. Uh, You need to be aware of the sort of ecological surroundings in which the dams or the levees exist in and how those are changing constantly. Uh, funding comes into play. Uh, maybe some people don't want the dam any there anymore or didn't want there in the first place, and this is potentially a good opportunity to get rid of the dam. And so that's when you can really start to see that th- all these different perspectives need to be uh, brought to the table. Otherwise, you're going to have sort of... Uh, Imperfect solutions that uh, may come back to uh, haunt you later on, or come back to to bite you in the butt. I guess. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, and thinking about again uh, that kind of complexity and and having a broad kind of diverse uh, idea of resilience is something that our next guest will talk about. Who's uh, Dan Daniel Eisenberg. Who is a recent uh, PhD graduate here in the School of Sustainable Engineering. And his work focuses on resilience engineering. Um, so we'll hear a little bit of a, kind of the technical side of things, but you also hear how it's much more than just sort of technical uh, considerations that, that that need to come into play. Today we are going to be talking to Daniel Eisenberg, who is a soon to be uh, PhD graduate uh, here at Arizona State University in sustainable engineering and his work primarily focuses on uh, resilience as well as some network science elements. So uh, Dan, welcome in. Thanks for, uh, for talking with us today. Um, Thanks for having me, Sam. Yeah. It's always a pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I guess we'll just jump in with sort of a broad question. Um, so what does resilience mean to you or from a, an engineering perspective?
4: Resilience from an engineering perspective. So just so you know, um, my background is also kind of in a military context, right? So I first started working on critical infrastructure resilience at the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers in the engineer, U.S. Army Engineer Research and Development Center, ERDC, um, and the Risk and Decision Sciences team. And I did that before starting my Ph.D. here at Arizona State University. And back in 2013, when I started doing that work, essentially uh, Presidential Policy Directive 21, Obama put out, as well as Executive Order 13636, these were these two guiding documents for all federal agencies essentially saying, we need more resilience. And it was focused largely on cyber infrastructure and risk management, but it it was also talking about all infrastructure systems of the United States, which includes energy, water, communications, Mobility, anything that you can really think of that's providing important lifeline services, uh, was under the sun of, uh, under the umbrella of we need resilience. And about the same time, and within those guiding documents, definitions of resilience came out that have largely been the ones that the engineering community has drawn upon that I'm aware of, and uh, the National Academies of Sciences definition from their disaster resilience a national imperative report that came out in 2012 is kind of a indicative one that follows both the definitions that was in the executive order presidential policy directive and is also cited and that's the one that's uh resilience is the ability to plan and prepare for absorb recover from and adapt to adverse events <laughs> so it's like four things planning and preparing before something happens Absorbing damages while it happens, recovering after you're able to arrest or absorb the problem, and then hopefully adapting and changing the system in the future to better deal with those situations that caused that problem in the first place, right? So that uh, those four processes add up to what comes up to be what people refer to as a critical functionality curve, So if you have your power grid or your water distribution system or your roads and they're providing a specific service like electricity or clean water or mobility, that critical service that's being provided, you plan and prepare for maintaining, recovering and adapting it when the problem occurs you absorb those damages, you lose some services, maybe you cause, you know, you have to cut some people off of the power grid to arrest the problem, cause a small blackout, or people lose water, or people lose access to transportation. But then you recover the system back to its previous service level and hopefully change it to try and deal with the problem again. And that's, in a nutshell, what most people uh, look at when they talk about engineering resilience. Now, um, you and I know that I don't agree with that <laughs> yeah. definition, and I don't agree with that perspective in terms of how we should approach it, uh, resilience for critical infrastructure systems. And uh, the way that I think about resilience is characteristically different. Uh, is, it's hard to describe, I think, in words, but uh, there's a pretty important work that came out in 2015 by Dr. David Woods, who's from Ohio State University, that's looking at four concepts of resilience. One is rebound, which is bringing your system back up to its original capacity, which if you think of the National Academy of Sciences definition and the definitions that are in public policy all over the place for infrastructure, that's rebound is kind of exactly what they're looking for, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. at least in the recovery. Um, another one is robustness, which is the ability to uh, design systems that not, like automatically handle threats up to specific design thresholds and that's largely captured in this kind of absorption process in this in the national academy's definition a third perspective which is not really captured in the other engineering perspectives is called extensibility or sometimes referred to as graceful extensibility but i don't really use the word graceful because it largely just means it worked yeah (laughs) um but it's extensibility which is uh being able to um extend current practices and processes to meet shifting and uh, adaptive surprises as they occur. So instead of relying on built-in thresholds like the height of a levee or the height of a dam or the, I don't know, Power line rating on how much current can go through a specific transmission line or distribution line. It's how can you change your current practices and break the rules and use these in different use these infrastructures in different ways that would be beyond their natural designed implica- uh, it, the natural designed uh, purpose uh, to help arrest damages before they occur. And if you're really good at extensibility, you might not need to you know absorb, uh, recover, adapt afterwards. You just naturally kind of don't experience the problem at all. Um, and then the last one is called sustained adaptability, which is uh, I, you know, is really just a rebranding of the word evolution um, yeah. <laughs> and is trying to encapsulate a lot of the ecological or socioecological perspectives of resilience that I'm aware of, where you have systems that are undergoing change that are constantly failing and recovering over time. And by going through these multiple cycles of booms and busts, you're able to evolve to a better state that deals with them better into the future. And so it wouldn't be just like one pass through planning and preparation, absorbing recovery and adaptation. It would be like multiple passes and seeing how systems would change over a longer scale. Um, And to me, resilience is not to say we want to better absorb, better recover, better adapt, or better plan and prepare. It's to say sometimes we need to be really robust to a problem. We need to build a higher levy. But sometimes building a higher levy is just going to put you in a worse position in the future, and so that might not be the best option. So instead of doing this robust solution, you might then say, okay, we're going to try and change a practice or put something in place that allows us to... um, improvise better, which would be more of an extensibility uh, solution. Uh, Equally, maybe we're going to double down on a specific rule that seemed to work, and we're going to say, okay, we don't ever want to have this problem again, so we're going to say everything has to meet this new standard, and by setting that standard, you're now creating a situation that leads to more sustained adaptability because you have to evolve around something that doesn't change And uh, rebound is just one way in which systems can respond. You know, you could transform systems as well. So maybe bringing the same pipeline or power line or roadway back up isn't necessarily the solution in the immediate aftermath of a disaster. Maybe we should just be building an entirely new system and use the same amount of money, same methods to do something else. So resilience is about applying the right strategy to your current context. And it, to me, it's really about this kind of active verb um, process of adapting to the surprises as they occur. And you have a suite of different solutions that are available to you, not just saying we're going to put more money into planning and preparing, more money into recovery, more money into strengthening or absorbing damages, and more money into adapting systems uh, to you know, deal with those problems afterwards, which is largely what's encapsulated in the engineering perspective.
0: So again, that was Dan Eisenberg. Uh, I think something that's really interesting that that Dan and Martha and Nancy have all sort of gotten at is that this resilience, it's not static. It's, as Dan was saying, it's a verb. It's this dynamic property uh, that requires adaptation and action. Yeah, I think you're
1: right, Stephen. Like, uh, even in my own sort of personal evolution of how I think about resilience i think i think that's that's true and like i when i first was you know working on this i did probably tend to fall in that category of of it's it's something you either have or you don't um but but as we've heard from our guests uh and through my own work i've said yeah i agree it's it's now this sort of uh ongoing quest i guess (laughs) it's you know it's a continual process you can always learn or evolve and and get more adaptive, uh, get, you know, improve your resilience. So it's, it, yeah, it is very much an action rather than um, sort of an end point to get to.
0: Yeah, right, and, and I think Dan had this really great uh, analogy that highlighted the importance of being able to think on your feet, to improvise, to surprising or unexpected scenarios. Uh, so let's, let's hear that.
4: Uh, you know, case in point, an example we like to talk about a lot is uh, when Sully was flying the, and landing in the, the Miracle on the Hudson, he had a standard of practice that he could have followed for ditching a plane in a, in a water landing situation, but that standard of practice was written for being at like full cruising altitude and having not necessarily both engines and all auxiliary power shut off, which was the situation they had. They were just after takeoff and everything failed. And in that situation, because they ditched the standard of practice and jumped from like page one to page four, technically on the list, they were much more capable of making that descent and making that correct solution that eventually saved the day and led to no deaths, right? Um, The idea in the work that we're doing is trying to figure out, okay, what are the conditions that make it more likely that people will be able to navigate this really complicated situation when handed a big problem like all oh, your engines fail. Okay, let's follow the rules or let's break the rules. And being able to understand, okay, these rules, these, these standards of practice are not going to serve me right now, and so I need to improvise. Or these standards of practice are exactly what I need to do right now, and by following them I'm going to you know, prevent the nuclear meltdown and prevent the plane from crashing. Yeah. And that's the big question for, I think, engineering resilience right now is to say... We can build these systems and we can make them, you know, survive really complicated and damaging hurricanes or floods or heat events or terrorist attacks. But you can't prepare for everything. And when the surprise does come, if you can't deal with that, you're not really resilient.
0: So hearing all this, you know, to me, it just kind of sounds like resilience is a good thing. Um, that's what, that's what it's the impression that I get. I kind of get listening to all these people and, and that's sort of how I, uh, traditionally thought about resilience for a a long time, that it is a positive property for Mm -hmm. a system Mm -hmm. to
1: have. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I tend to agree with that. And I think, yeah, I I would imagine most people think that being resilient, yeah, acting in a resilient manner. Uh, is a worthwhile endeavor, but uh, as we started to see, that's maybe not. Uh, it's not always as cut and dry as as it may seem, and, and uh, resilience may not always be a good thing, as as Marta uh, will explain in our next clip. Would you say that it is good to be resilient?
3: No, no, like not at all. I I think, and 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 again, I think that this is part of the controversy around resilience. Uh, Resilience to me, and this might be contentious, but resilience to me is a quality, an emergent property of a system. A system is resilient or not. It, it, it just is, you know. But that that system will be a desirable system. That's a value question, and I don't think resilience is particularly strong at answering those. And I think that's the frustration that a lot of social scientists um, experience when talking with resilience scholars that they find that the resilience uh, lens is depoliticizing, that it actually hides behind this, you know, systems perspective. Um, it hides what I think social scientists suspect is a preference for the status quo, and I don't think that that's I don't think that that's necessarily a fair uh, assessment of many of the resilience scholars. I, I don't think that um, that's you know I think resilience scholars have preference for you know like particular forms of socio-ecological systems, um, but I think that that's why it comes out that resilience is this you know neutral thing that the system has or doesn't have but you can say well a dictatorship is usually very resilient um highly undesirable uh really violent and so on so no definitely I would say that resilience and desirability are two different things yeah
1: so yeah, so Stephen, I don't know about you, but it's a little bit surprising to hear Mark to say that uh, she doesn't think that resilience is is a good thing, or, or at least always a good thing. Um, I, I don't know, I at least found that kind of uh, pretty surprising. But I also tend to agree with her when you when you kind of unpack what she's saying a little bit more. Um, and I think that highlights an important part of uh, any work related to resilience. I think it's uh, uh it's important to be a lot more transparent about uh, what you're trying to be resilient to or what what, uh, what actions you're pursuing and who stands to sort of benefit or not benefit from those. So I think uh, th- we're not always going to be able to have something that everyone's happy with. But I think if we can at least be more transparent about what we're trying to do, then people can then uh, come to the table and discuss, you know, what 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 works for the, the broader community. Uh, yeah, you're totally right. And I think uh, Marta mentioned this
0: earlier, and I think it's really important for us as resilience researchers to be very conscious uh, when we're defining and framing resilience uh, because we need to ask these questions, as Marta said, uh, resilience of what, to what, for whom. So we really need to be careful about setting our boundaries and, uh, and sort of really establishing w- what, are, what our goal is. Um, when we're talking about resilience. Yeah, so as Martha mentioned, you know, a dictatorship is really undesirable, but also highly resilient. Um, And there's other examples of that, too. Corruption can be highly resilient, but obviously very undesirable to those people who are being negatively impacted by that. So I think it's really uh, interesting to to frame resilience in this way because I I think you're right, you talked about this earlier. I think most people think
1: of being resilient as as a positive trait. Yeah. Um, so. And I think we do in our in our work as well, but again, it's just important f- to to be aware of the fact that that there are cases of bad resilience, so you want to make sure that you're not uh, perpetuating yeah. <laughs> those cases you know if you're if you're uh, out there implementing uh, resilience strategies in any way exactly. Okay. And I think all this really highlights uh, the the complexity and the challenge that comes along with with doing work in the resilient space. Uh, so, you know, hopefully this episode has helped add a little bit of clarity, but I'm sure there's probably still some some questions uh, that remain. But that's what kind of makes this an exciting and challenging topic.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I asked Dr. Nancy Graham, our first guest, uh, why she thought urban resilience was an interesting topic to study. Why do you study urban resilience? Why is it an interesting topic to you and worth devoting all this time
2: well i personally feel that this is one of the most difficult and biggest and most wicked problems that we as a society have to face um i i think um, we're starting to see now uh, you know, since I've been working in this field, I've always been interested in change and disturbance, and you know, sort of the impact of, um, of various kinds of environmental changes on ecosystems, and then more recently on on people. So, how urbanization affects uh, ecological environments and so forth. Um, and when I first started working on this, you know, environmental change was a, a panoply of different kinds of changes that. Um, of which climate change was just one. Um, but I see it becoming more and more and more um, urgent, and people are now starting to recognize that climate change is, in fact, happening, and that we're moving into situations that we can't, we're not going to be able to ever, um, even if we stopped emitting uh, greenhouse gases right now, we're still on this trajectory where there is going to be an impact of, of what has happened so far. Um, it's going to continue to affect for example coastal areas in terms of sea level rise, it's going to continue to increase temperature, it's going to continue um, to mess with um, biological distributions and um, the thing I think that I focus on and the reason for this is because I work in cities is that extreme events are becoming more frequent and more severe um, and also are much more uncertain so we don't really know how to predict them. Um, We don't ever really necessarily know how to predict um, these kinds of uh, extreme events, but probably better than we do now. I mean, using these sort of past as a guide to the future. um, That's really not going to work now because the world is not um, uh, stationary. The probabilities are not stationary that those events will happen. So I see this as Uh, Just something every city is going to have to deal with. Um, And people are moving to cities. We're going to have, maybe by the end of the century, we're going to have 90% of the world's population living in cities. So that's not urbanization. That's urban. I mean, that's when the world has become urban. And then um, that's the point at which I think... uh, we're, we're gonna we're gonna have to well because it's happening really fast even while population is growing this migration to cities is happening so in many parts of the world we don't even have the infrastructure to deal with extreme events hitting those populations um, in many parts of the world we have massive informal settlements or slums surrounding cities um, that have no infrastructure whatsoever um, and in many parts of the world that have had cities for a long time, that the infrastructure is becoming very old, needs to be replaced, and it's not going to be adequate for the future. So um, I think these these issues are really something that everybody is going to have to deal with. And I say everybody because most of us are going to be living in cities. So I think it's one of the biggest problems and challenges there is, and that's why um, I feel like I'm really I, – I, I like. Doing so, I mean, I've always felt like I need to do something that had a, made a difference to um, uh, to to people, um, and uh, I feel that this is really an important area to be working in. So that's that's why I like it.
1: So yeah, as we kind of b- begin to wrap up here, hopefully uh, this episode has given you a little bit more context of you know what resilience is, and hopefully a little bit of more clarity on that issue, uh, and maybe more importantly the challenges that are associated with it. So, uh, I don't know about you, Steven, uh, but sometimes those challenges can be very difficult and frustrating to, uh, come up against, but that's also what gets me kind of most excited about working in the space of resilience and and working to make our cities more resilient in a positive way, uh, for, for, for everybody, uh, to as many threats as possible. Uh, and so, um, uh, yeah, that's, that's what really gets me excited about it. With that, I think we'll
0: leave, uh, leave it to you. Uh, thanks again for listening. If you liked what you heard, uh, subscribe to us on uh, whatever podcasting app you use. And if you have any questions, uh, reach out to us on Twitter at FutureCitiesPod or at our email account at FutureCitiesPodcast at gmail.com. Thanks.